This is Phantom Power. Hey, it's Phantom Power. I'm Mac Haygood. And today we are listening to an excerpt from a nearly two hour interview that I did with Jonathan Stern. Jonathan is a past guest on the show. He's the author of The Audible Past, MP3, The Meaning of a Format, and the book that we discussed for an April 13th episode of Phantom Power, Diminished Faculties, A Political Phenomenology of Impairment. If you didn't hear that show, It was about Jonathan's experience with thyroid cancer and a paralyzed vocal cord and what it taught him about voice, technology, and disability informing his recent book. Link in the show notes if you haven't heard that one. It was one of our most popular episodes from last season. And just to pull the curtain back a bit, when we do a narrative episode of this kind on Phantom Power, we generally do a lengthy interview with our subject, I try to hang back, stay out of the way, let them speak, and then we spend weeks or months in production editing the interview down in order to tell the most streamlined and powerful story possible. And obviously, you know, that means that we can't include everything. And when you're talking about a scholar like Jonathan, a lot of fascinating stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. And so I asked my assistant, Jason Megacy, to clean up the full interview a bit. And we have published over, uh, it's like one hour and 45 minutes on our patrons only feed. And in that full length interview, we discussed topics such as the beginning of sound studies, Jonathan's entry into the field, how his youth and his upbringing contributed to his path, um, what sound studies is all about in his mind, and uh, his illness, his vocal impairment, and a lot of fascinating theoretical ideas about voice, media, disability, and more. For folks who aren't patrons, we have a really great excerpt in store for you today. But before we get to that, and you know, while we're pulling the curtain back on things, let me just make a quick pitch for our Patreon. It recently occurred to me that I've been doing this show for five years. It really flew by. I just didn't even realize that until recently. And this season, we've upped our output to two shows a month. We recently hit 3,000 unique listeners a month. I'm really thrilled and honored that people find this show useful and worth their time. Um, And you may not be aware, but this show is not funded at the moment. I'm paying for the server costs and paying Jason out of pocket, which I don't mind doing at all. This is a labor of love for me. The problem is that I want to be able to pay producers a fair and competitive rate to make great episodes for you. And that's just more than I can handle on my own. So if you're a longtime listener and you're able to share three or seven or 20 bucks a month and you just haven't gotten around to it, please go to patreon.com slash phantom power. We have bonus content and swag like mugs and t-shirts for patrons. If we could just get 10% of our listeners to kick in, we'd be in really good shape. It would help me stay um, you know, up with this pace of two shows a month when I'm trying to do my scholarship and other things. Um, so that would be amazing. We're a long, long way from that 10% right now. Um, so we could use the help, but if that's not something you can do right now, no worries. The most important thing is that you're along for the ride. 
Okay, so let's get to this juicy excerpt, part of a wide-ranging discussion we had about voice, and specifically, we're going to hear Jonathan on the notion of expressiveness in the voice, um, but also in musical instruments, which is one of those things that I just could not fold into the show. So um, that'll be really interesting, I think. We touch on topics like transmission impairments in media technology, a concept that Mara Mills, another Phantom Power guest, has worked on. And we entertain intriguing questions like, when is a vocal difference an impairment? And when is it sort of like this beloved aesthetic uh, device, right? Like the voice of Louis Armstrong or Tom Waits. So I think you're gonna enjoy this. And once again, thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Enjoy. You cited Graham Pullen and Andrew Cook's claim that um, a lack of variation in tone of voice can actually never be neutral. Um, that mm -hmm. because we we th we think that vocal impairment um, indexes some kind of emotional impairment or like a flat affect through the voice. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, Pullen and Cook built this uh, project called Six Speaking Chairs, which I think you can Google and there are videos. Um, but they all each chair only says one word. For instance, yes. And if you think about British culture, like the, the inflections of the word yes mean very different things. I can't do it because I'm not British, but, you know, even, even for, um, for Americans like us, like yes versus yes, right? Those inflections mean very different things. And augmentative and assistive uh, communication technologies for speech have traditionally focused on just audibility and legibility. In other words, the lexical meaning of the words and not any kind of pitch variation. And the result is that um, there is a sort of a, on the part of hearers, there's often an attribution of flat effect or not as much of a subject there uh, to listeners or by listeners to speakers. I mean, this is a bigger problem with disability. My favorite example of this is cerebral palsy, where um, people will um, assume that a person with cerebral palsy also has some kind of intellectual impairment, which is not, I mean, right. not often the case. Um, but because the person doesn't move, um, like a person without cerebral palsy and because it affects the sound of a person's speech. Um, there's this assumption that there's an impaired subject inside or there's a, there's an intellectual impairment to go with the physical impairment. So voice is used this way um, as an index of interiority. It expresses the, the variation in pitch and volume is heard to express um, the inner self of the speaker. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's actually something I want to write about. This has also been a huge problem in the design of electronic instruments, 
musical instruments. So if you think hmm. about all of the new kinds of keyboards and grids and touch interfaces for musicians, there's all this talk about expressiveness, um, mm-hmm. which there it's using touch. It's like um, subject touch sound rather than subject breath voice sound. Um, but it's the same exact thing where they're looking for direct um, sub- finger control over variations in loudness, in pitch, or in timbre as representing the musician's intention. Um, this is something that designers are obsessed about, even though there are whole successful um there are many successful genres of electronic music that precisely don't rely on these things. So you think about all the different varieties of techno, most of them precisely don't rely on um, this kind of link between um, gesture and sound that is meant to represent the musician's intent. And yet aficionados of like Berlin um, Berlin techno or Detroit techno will wax poetically about what the artists are doing and the meaningfulness of their work. So in fact, expressiveness doesn't matter in the way that we say it does. When you look at people who actually care about the music, right. And who are actually relating to the music. And I think the same is probably true uh, with voice, although we don't have any good examples other than um, maybe Merrill Apple, Alper's study of um, kids' use of augmentative and assistive technology with uh, their parents. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe in a family context where there's an intimate relationship with the person prior to the speech act. Uh, you could find something like that. But the interesting thing about the techno example is like at some point in someone's life, even if they're a huge techno fan, they hadn't heard techno before and then they hear it and they are moved by the music. So what would it mean Mm -hmm. to engage with voice in a similar way? And that's actually something I try to explore in the second chapter of the book where I'm looking at um, sort of mechanical Uh, and sort of technological representations and mediations of voice rather than, say, verbal interpreters, uh, which I think is an interesting counter example that I don't talk about. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I I feel like uh, just in everyday life, we, we, uh, we modulate ourselves to people who are uh, sort of have different levels of expressiveness in, in their voice, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think it's something that, uh, you just kind of come to expect and, you know, oh, okay, that's a, that's a 10 for him, even though it sounds like a five for somebody else or whatever. Right? Yeah, that's true. And there's also this weird phenomenon of voice matching. So when I'm really hoarse and have no voice, I sometimes... I mean, what does it mean to have no voice if I'm actually speaking to people? That's another. <laughs> I don't even know what I mean by that. And I wrote, I've written probably hundreds of pages on voices at this point. Uh, um, 
I have this experience where when I'm really hoarse and talking to someone, they will whisper back at me. Yeah. Yeah. Like matching my, you know, and then there's the whole indoor outdoor voice and stuff like that as well. One of the things that I'm super interested in as a, as a media person is uh, the way you discuss Mara's work with transmission impairments versus medical impairments and the whole idea that this, this notion of impairment evolves. And there's a, there's a great section where you talk about harmonic distortion and like yellowing book pages and the grain of film synth slop. Um, and in all of these examples, the impairments are kind of an important and inherent aspect of the character of the communication, right? Like, or we could say the same thing about, I don't know, the voice of Tom Waits or Louis Armstrong or Brenda Vaccaro or Future, whoever, right? Um, yeah, yeah, Can yeah. you maybe talk about, about that, the way that um, there's a way that impairment is not something extra or something that uh, that disrupts, but is rather just intrinsic to the thing itself? Yeah, sure. Um, well, so there's a couple ways in there. I mean, if we're going to talk about communication impairments, then we should talk about the sort of transmission theories of communication where... Mm -hmm. These come from engineering and more specifically from telephony, the idea that the person on the receiving end of the telephone should be able to understand what the person on the speaking end is saying. And um, they start looking at everything that interferes with that as noise, as a problem, right? So you could imagine like the white noise on a telephone line or the kind of weird sort of swooshiness of, um, of um, audio codecs that um, VoIP and uh, mobile phone systems use. And um, those things are seen as transmission impairments, right? And in audio engineering, this is true. And in video engineering, this is true as well. So as new formats are developed, oftentimes they're trying to overcome the limitations of previous formats. So the first reviews of compact discs said, I don't hear any vinyl noise, or I don't hear any tape hiss. Um, the first reviews of digital video said, I don't see the grain of the film. Now the problem is, over when, when communication becomes an aesthetic and meaningful enterprise rather than just an instrumental one, all those yeah. things are really valuable and you grow up with those sounds. So there have been studies of music listeners of mul multiple generations that constantly find people prefer the sound of the music generated by the distribution or media format that they grew up with. So if you grew up with records and tape, you want your music to sound like it was made for or on uh, records and tape. If you grew up with 128 kilobit per second MP3s, you want you're, you think that's how music should sound, and it's the same for film, right? Today, serious cinema is synonymous visually with the grain of film, even though you could do it on digital video, and lots of people do. Um, right. Rock and roll drums are synonymous with. 
um, the sound of analog tape. Hip-hop drums are synonymous with the sound of 12-bit um, digital reproduction from samplers in the 1990s. And so these become sort of aesthetic techniques that artists use because it signals the meaningfulness of the sound in some kind of aesthetic tradition and because it implies histories of use, histories of practice. And when you get down to uh, voices, um, the, you know, the vocal impairment of a Tom Waits or a Louis Armstrong becomes a signature sound, which is something that's celebrated in music, but not nearly as much in speech. Um, hmm. And so that's an interesting, or it is, but not in mediated speech. If you think about the ways in which voices are disciplined for radio or for television and the kinds of vocal varieties that that are allowed or not allowed into broadcast uh, distribution networks. I mean, obviously, podcasting, you can find a much wider range of variability. And even the yeah. sound of politicians' voices. Yeah. So um, there's a way in which because voices are seen as being closer to subjects, even though they're not, they're just as mediated as any other sound. Um, because they're seen or understood to be closer to subjects, they're more heavily policed. How is it that some vocal impairments become um, love objects and others are interpreted as... Dis, you know, a disabled voice. I think it has to do with the genre conventions and the ability of the vocal performer to work within or against those conventions. So if we're talking yeah, yeah, to his yeah. Armstrong, first of all, he's a trumpeter, then he's a singer. So he's already established a certain amount of ethos as a performer independently of his voice. And then the singing is still very much within the idiom of the music that he's producing. So I'll, I'll take a, a counterexample, which is um, the, the um, sports announcer Joe Buck, who announces baseball and American football and several other sports for uh, the Fox Network in the United States. He had a paralyzed vocal cord. And because Buck was already seen as not expressive enough for the genre, that was one of the things he was criticized for, when he had the paralyzed vocal cord, it was understood as a problem because he was too monotone. Because he wasn't doing what I'm doing now, which is exerting all this effort in order to talk, because that's not what you're yeah. supposed to do. You're supposed to hang back, and that will like preserve and save your voice. Um, so it doesn't become hoarse like mine has become over the course of this interview. So um, so that's an interesting counterexample where if you listen to Joe Buck's voice, you wouldn't even know there's anything wrong with it necessarily if you didn't know how to listen for a vocal cord impairment, which of course I do. Um, but it just sounds like he's sort of holding back and something's wrong. And why isn't this guy getting more excited at the action in the sporting event? Yeah. So I think those are two 
those are two pretty interesting examples. I mean, the other place you can look at the regulation of voices outside and where actual difference is understood as an impairment of sort, sorts is like what accents are allowable on television. Um, so, for instance, in, on American TV, you'll hear much more African-American English than one used to. Um, right. Or uh, women's voices as um, as uh, narrators' voices or as um, authority voices, either, you know, um, news readers or um, talk show hosts or things like that. Um, there's all sorts of modulations that women speakers are taught to do to conform to broadcast expectations. And if they're outside of those things, then they're not useful or, um, their voices are considered not to be, um, what's Michelle Shion's word for this, uh, phonogenic. So I think that it's it's both and sometimes impairments are allowed in and then voices that are you could say are completely unimpaired from a disability perspective um, are socially impaired uh, because of expectations of the genre or format or style. And I, I, you sparked something in, in my mind um when you were talking about the possibility of damaging your voice through the act of communication, I think in some genres of music, um, it's, it's almost beyond an aesthetic to, um, to kind of get a shredded sound out of your voice. But sometimes I don't wonder if, if, if it's the act of shredding the voice itself, that kind of, of audible sacrifice that the singer is making um, is an important part of some kinds of, punk and metal and screamo. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, Michael Heller has this wonderful piece on three kinds of loudness. And, uh, that's the interesting thing about the shredded voice is that it's actually imagined loudness, mm. uh, because you could listen to it very quietly, but it signifies an oversaturated channel in the way that a distorted guitar or a distorted drum sound does as well. Um, yeah. so even if it's physically quiet in the room, it quote unquote sounds loud. The interesting yeah. thing about that is that that sound varies by genre and year. So yeah. in the 1980s, the sound of Phil Collins snare drum, uh, was heard as loud, whereas today it's heard as cheesy. Uh -huh. Um, by some people, I mean, I'm casting no aspersion on, on, fans of Phil Collins. I'm just talking about trends in audio engineering. Um, that sort of weird gated snare sound was heard as loud at the time in a way that it's not so much now. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that's, uh, I think the shredding of the voice, just like the, I mean, in a way it's, uh, it's a, uh, it's another ver it's vocal scarification instead of audile scarification. Um, this sort of deliberate attack on the faculty of hearing by loud music. That's part of the experience of certain kinds of musical performance and musical genres. And that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. 
Huge thanks to Jonathan Stern for allowing us to use the full-length interview. You can hear it in its entirety at patreon.com slash phantom power. Today's show was edited by Jason Megacy, and our music today was by Graham Gibson. See you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you.